And I really hit a point in Zen practice where I was just trying too hard. And my teacher, Shamu, she would occasionally tease me and she'd say, oh, you Buddhists. We Taoists say, live a long life, be happy. (laughs) (laughs) And I really needed that to to learn that's okay. Uh, In fact, I, I don't like the word practice. It's, well, how do I go about enjoying my life? Hey, everyone. It's Raghu back with Mind Rolling and uh, have a wonderful guest. We're just like, we started catching up just this second. Uh, Robert Rosenbaum, Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And we just started catching up because we don't know each other at all. We do, by the way, have a, uh, we do have an intersection big time, as far as I'm concerned, who wrote the intro to the, uh, this wonderful book that I'm going to talk to you about, uh, Norman Fisher. And I've had Norman on a couple of times. I love Norman's work. So that's, you know, a level of trust that's very immediate. So that makes it all quite lovely, really. Um, but then uh, I think I mentioned uh, a couple of things to, to Bob just before we got on. Uh, it's Ramdas's Be Here Now Network or something. And then, what did you start I, I, to say? Yeah, well, please. I, I started to say I was very much, I have been looking forward to uh, talking with you because this kind of um, closes a circle for me. I started to get into meditation after hearing Ramdas speak in college. Oh yeah. When I was oh about 21 or or so, 20 years old, and I read Be Here Now, and I knew nothing about meditation, but I said, well, that sounds kind of good to be here now. So I sat down and decided to <laughs> yeah. meditate and knowing nothing, I just said, okay, be here now. No, that's too late. I'm too late already. Wait. <laughs> be here now. Now. No, now. I did that for a year <laughs> really, before I went, you know, oh, maybe I ought to find out a little bit about how to do this. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. I love that story. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And you're not kidding for a year. You be here now. Whoops. No, yeah. be. <laughs> yep. No, I, I really did try oh, it. Uh, I was, uh, you know, if Ramdas was still with us the, the way that we had him before, <laughs> he would have loved that. Yeah, he would have really so. loved that. Oh, yeah. that's great, Bob. Uh, no, Bob has this wonderful book called This Is Not Your Mind. So as soon as I saw that, it interested me immediately because we discuss what is or isn't a lot. And, uh, and it's also Zen reflections on the Surangama Sutra and, uh, Bob, boy, you've done a lot in this lifetime already. I mean, in terms of the uh, and being involved in, in in a couple of different very important practices, obviously Zen, and then um, also body movement uh, with uh, is it yeah. Tai Chi or Qigong? Uh, well, I I do a little bit of Tai Chi, but uh, really my main devotion is to Dayen Wild Goose Qigong. Mm. Uh, I got into that 
because I'd been doing Zen for about 20 years or so, and I had uh, some uh, back problems and pain problems. And a friend said, well, why don't you try this Qigong stuff? Mm. And I grew up in New York. I'm a skeptic. <laughs> I went, ah, <laughs> oh, Qigong, no, I'm in California now. No, all my friends will say, no, you can't do that. Mm. But um, I went and I felt better. And my teacher, uh, Shermu, we called her, uh, uh, Master Wee Liu, was such a genuine, wonderful person. And uh, people listening to this podcast can't see, but one of the distinctive features of Wild Goose Qigong is that you flutter. No, we can see. We we can see, Bob. So do it. We can see it on YouTube. Oh, great. If we want to. So you flutter kind of like this, and Shermu's hands were just so beautiful. And actually, uh, later on, I came across a Zen book called Opening the Hand of Thought. Mm. But in Qigong, we're very literal. And if you want to relax and feel happy, to, to open your hands... And to, to simply have the hand be relaxed. You see, most people go, walk around with a hand like this. Mm. And simply to allow the hand to relax, it's very hard to be angry or upset when mm. your hand is like this. But in any case, I was in doing Zen, and you can tell from my story of trying to be here now for a year, <laughs> I tend to be a little obsessive and, <laughs> you know, intense. Mm-hmm. And, and I really hit a point in Zen practice where I was just trying too hard. Mm-hmm. And my teacher, Shermu, who, as many Chinese, uh, practices Buddhism and Taoism and uh, Confucianism, she would occasionally tease me and she'd say, oh, you Buddhists always been talking about old age, suffering, sickness, death. Said, we Taoists say, live a long life, be happy. <laughs> 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 and um, I really needed that to, to, mm. to learn that's okay. Uh, in fact, really, I would say practices. I don't like the word practice. It's, well, how do I go about enjoying my life? How do I go about appreciating? <laughs> I, I, don't, I actually wouldn't say, how can I be in this moment? Because I don't think you can be in a moment because moments aren't things that you can <laughs> somehow inhabit, right? But how can I appreciate what's happening Immediately. Um, that's a really good question. It actually sometimes when I first started practicing, my first reaction would be, there's no way you can appreciate this. <laughs> what are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> right. But there always is. There always is. It might not be pleasant, but you can appreciate it. Yeah, well, that's a huge statement right there. It might not be pleasant. We don't like unpleasantness. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. We don't want to be uncomfortable. 
I mean, I, I, yeah, I see it so clearly in myself after all these decades of of doing this stuff and, uh, thank God a little bit of a sense of humor. Otherwise it would be very dispiriting (laughs) how we shy away that way. Yeah. So, all right. What happened? You're be here now every day. I mean, I, I think we should, you know, I do this thing with, um, uh, this is all under the umbrage of Love Serve Remember Foundation, this Be Here yeah. Now network that we got together for our, basically our lineage. Uh, and um, so, I, you know, I'm just thinking, wow, we really uh, should be tremendously happy that we have this uh, as a day-to-day kind of, uh, it's our little motto. And it's what Ramdas was promulgating all these years. And it's what really does represent us because we would get involved with Neem Karoli Baba. I think you, if you, you were doing Be Here Now Every Day, you have that image of the man in the blanket uh, saying when Ramdas said, well, I, I, you know, I have a lot of Buddhist friends. He didn't say this, but he was thinking, I've had a lot of mm-hmm. Buddhist friends. And I, you know, they've been given some extraordinary practices you know, of such complexity that for sure they're going to get enlightened. So would you, could you give me, you know, uh, and he did say, can, you know, what can I do to raise my Kundalini? My, you know, that was one feed people. And he thought, and he says to himself, that's a, that's kind of a look, what kind of response is that feed people? I mean, I need a, I need a practice, which goes back to what we were just talking about. Right. And then he, he asked it again in a different manner, maybe about uh, enlightenment. And I, and he said, love everyone. And so this is, so we've walked away with this. Yeah. And then it just struck me what, that you were talking about practice. It should be, wow, every moment is extraordinary. Yes. Is the practice. But so very difficult, especially in my mind, for Westerners. Because we are so goal oriented and we are so judgmental, etc. Yes, indeed. Um, a lot of my learning has not been in the Zendo, although the Zendo practice has been tremendously helpful for me. But I've done a lot of uh, trekking in Nepal, and Westerners go to Nepal, and everyone wants to get to Mount Everest or, you know, get to Annapurna base camp. And usually they're going a little too high, too fast, and they get tired after three, four, five hours of walking. And so they'll ask their Sherpa guide, how far? How much longer? And the Sherpa guide says, (laughs) Kid in the back of the car, are we there? Right, right. That's right. Are we there there yet? And the Sherpa says, not far now. And an hour goes by and they say, well, well, how much further? Not far now. Whenever you ask, it doesn't matter. So the answer is always not far now, <laughs> which means basically here we are. Enjoy yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's very hard for Westerners uh, to learn that. It was hard for me uh, to learn that. but. If you don't start with, well, here we are, 
you're always going to be someplace else. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> where, all right. So after the year, where did you go? What What were the things that helped to develop this sense? I mean, you said, wow, maybe we could be happy. This, this is a good goal, right? And Oh, um, I, I didn't get ha- to happiness for another 20 years. Oh, 20. That's nothing. That's nothing. <laughs> no, no I, 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 I was striving for enlightenment you know yes. for uh, i i went to a zendo and learned a little meditation and i wanted to get enlightened and i went to japan and i sat in japan mm. and i was <laughs> i was studying the japanese bamboo flute which is a beautiful mm. instrument mm, yeah. the shakuhachi yeah yeah but i was living in a, a zen center that some friends introduced me to and uh, another friend said, you know, the, the head of that Zen center is very right wing. And I went, what? He says, oh, yeah, he, he was a war criminal. And the government basically gave him a choice between going into prison or going into a Zen monastery. And he <laughs> chose the monastery. <laughs> and I went, That's great. Zen teachers can be right wing? <laughs> and, and he had this very uh, people would practice the sword kendo and they'd hit each other and they'd go around shouting and the fact people would brag about how many koans they had solved <laughs> and that just didn't feel right to me so I left and I kind of wandered around for a while and I kept on meditating and I'd read a book and I'd try meditating this way or read another book and I'd try meditating that way. And then I, I got married. I had children. As John Capitson says, you know, or I guess absorb the Greek, the whole catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I, uh, my, I got a Fulbright to teach in India. With and bring my family along with my two young kids, and we went there. I, I'm going to digress a little bit because no it was problem. so Lovely. Indian. It was so wonderful. Where so, where were you? I, well, I when you apply for Fulbright, you apply for a particular position doing a particular thing, and I applied to teach psychology at Delhi University, and I I got accepted. And soon I was getting all the paperwork that you get, you know, the bureaucracy of India. Oh, how many bedrooms do you want? And and how many servants do you want to be with your children? And what is your reading list? And what are your goals? And, yeah, yeah. and I, I would fill all this stuff out and I'd send it there. Well, eventually my family and I got there and uh, we went to the Fulbright house in Delhi and sat down and had some tea. And after about an hour or so of chit-chatting, I thought, okay, I've been polite. Now, I really want to know where we're going to live and what's going to be like to go to Delhi University. So I said to the head of the Fulbright program, oh, so when do I go to Delhi University to start teaching there? And he took a little sip of his tea and he said, oh, well, Delhi University does not have a department of psychology. <laughs> <laughs> And oh, but no problem, no problem. Uh, we'll, we'll figure something out, and they did. Uh, and it's one of the things that I learned in India and in 
uh, Nepal was something always works out. So I went to uh, uh, South India to the National Institute of Mental Health and Neurosciences. And my duties were light and my family was happy and everything was, was going fine. And I wasn't happy. I wasn't Back unhappy. Yeah, I wasn't depressed, but it just felt like something was missing. Mm. And I happened to come across a, a book uh, which talked about Shikantaza, just sitting. And if you ever go to India, you can see a lot of people there are quite good at just hanging out. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which was a novel idea to me. So I started mm. doing that and that got me into Zen. Mm. Uh, but I was still, you know, I'd had a few Satori Kensho enlightenment type experiences and it was like, mm. well, there's got to be something else here. <laughs> there's got to mm. be something else. Um, and so I kept, I, I remember at one point I was talking to a a friend of mine who's now the head of Berkeley Zen Center. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm stuck. I sit down, I meditate, I try to follow my breath. I, I, I try not to do anything. I try to focus. I try this. I try that. I, you know, none of it's working. And my friend turned to me and he said, Bob, you don't get it. I said, what? He said, just don't do anything. <laughs> well, that's a really good meditation instruction. Because, uh, of mm. course, as soon as you sit and say, well, okay, I'm not going to do anything, you notice how much you're doing <laughs> all yes. the time. Yeah, six-hour fantasies. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, but, of course, I, I worked very hard at doing, not doing. Mm. Uh, and of course that doesn't work. Uh, so it, it takes a little while sometimes before, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, uh, when I was in Nepal, a, f a friend of mine was trying to create the great Himalaya trail, the highest feasible non-technical trekking route from the eastern part of the Himalayas all the way across. And he invited me to go with him. Mm. And so we went to these very, very remote villages where nobody, had, no Westerner had been for ages. And we went to one village where they had a room for us above the, a little shop. And it was a kind of dark room and it was very bright outside. And as many Nepalese, uh, dwellings are they were kind of lower ceilings and lower door door frames than you'd be used to and so i'd go to leave the room and i'd bang my head against the door sill <laughs> and i'd go ouch okay next time i leave i'm going to remember to duck and i'd go back into the room and it'd be time to leave again and it's very bright outside so you can't really see what you're doing and bam, I hit my head again. And I did this at least seven or eight times. And I started to realize, 
this is what I'm doing in my meditation practice. (laughs) I keep bumping my head and and saying, next time, (laughs) next time. And of course, there is no next time. Mm. Um, uh, That's actually true. But... uh, it's a little hard to wrap our habits around that. Yeah. Um, and actually, I, I just ran across a phrase in the uh, Lankavatara Sutra where somebody asks the Buddha, what's enlightenment? Uh, and he's, oh, what's nirvana? He said, oh, nirvana. It's simply transforming your habit energy. Really? I never heard that. But you know, um, one thing about the continuation of banging one's head against that low-hanging two by four, uh, I like what Sharon Salzberg, and I'm sure you know Sharon, uh, I like what she says, and she says it repeatedly because it is good. Repetition is excellent. You can always come back. Mm -hmm. And you can come back and no matter how lost you, how many times you banged your head against that two by four, yes, you can return. And yes. that, that human, that's a great human trait, yes. shall we say, that can be mined. Yeah. So yes. I just thought yes. of that while you were saying that. Yes, we, we come back to our original home, which we've never really left, um, which is why we can come back to it wherever we are or in a more semi more practical sense to the breath that which is natural for us on a moment to moment i'm a big you know uh, advocate of that uh, particularly we were all trained in vipassana when we were in india with neem karoli baba that ju- it just happened and he, he it it became a foundational thing for us over these many years, for for many of us, most of us actually. Well, um, I, can I say something about that? Because yes, yeah, you, absolutely. That's why we're here. You, you, yeah. Well, you, you you pushed one of my buttons, and oh, you know, I know good, as a teacher, I'm not supposed to have buttons. You know, very good. But um, the coming back to the breath is a wonderful practice. And it so happens that about 10 years ago, I developed a a very rare uh, autoimmune disease, Mm. which made it very, very difficult to breathe. And it wasn't diagnosed for about three years. And whenever I would try and come back to the breath, it would just be worse and worse and worse. The more I tried to come back to the breath, uh, the worse I felt. Mm. And since that time, so fortunately, I've I eventually got diagnosed and I can breathe better now, though I am still have to be a little careful. Mm. Um, but I had to think, well, okay, uh, as a neuropsychologist, I worked with a lot of elderly and a lot of older people die of pneumonia. And you can't necessarily breathe very well. Mm. 
So I think it's very helpful to have a sense of what can you come back to when absolutely everything fails and the breath sometimes will fail you. And I, by all means, stay with the breath if, if that works for you. But also be aware, well, there's nothing in this sensory world which um, can be grasped. There's nothing you can absolutely rely on except things being exactly as they are. And how do you come back to, well, in the Surangama Sutra, they they say, uh, oh, whatever practice you're doing, oh, stop doing that practice and just go to the enlightened basis of that practice. To which my friends say, yeah, well, how do you do that? <laughs> um, well, that's the question. Uh, when everything fails you, where are you? What, mm. what, what do you go to? You know, this is, this is leading to a conversation I had with uh, Roshi Joan Halifax on a yes. podcast actually many years ago, some years ago. I, uh, I asked her, I said, you spend so much time with Ramdas, you know, you're so close and all that. So ever present is, uh, Neem Karoli Baba pictures. He's talking about him all the time. What do you think of him? I just asked her that. Mm -hmm. She stopped and she said, when I look in his eyes, I see emptiness. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, that was our, pretty much our experience with him, you know, in person. And I said, uh, the, the fact that we had that as our, you know, what the word is, an ishta devata in, 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 in the Hindu thing, which mm -hmm. is worship of a divine mm -hmm. entity, say, which is mm -hmm. what bhakti is, which is the dualism, which mm -hmm. is the anchor that we were just mm -hmm. referring to in that way. And uh, so I, I said something like that to her, and she said, well, you know, at some point, you have to let that go. You just yeah. have to let it go. And then, you know, we're talking about at one minute with what is. She didn't yeah. quite say it that way, but however she said it. So I said to her, Roshi, maybe you've done this a million more times. I know you've done it a million more times than I, because I'm a simpleton, and uh, I wouldn't give up that duality thing for nothing right now. <laughs> <laughs> she laughed. We had a good time about that. That's great. That's great. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, and that, you know, that's around, yes, I hear you exactly about mentioning Sharon's thing, you always can return. And it's, okay, where are you returning to? And for me, um, it's a habitual pattern. This, this, anything you create is, you create a habitual, hopefully you're going to create some 
that are maybe more positive, you know, and you try and sure. substitute the shitty ones with the more positive ones. And the breath, the anapana, you know, the vipassana meditative practice has been that personally for me in my life. I mean, it's not all I do, but it's certainly a, a device to settle down, shall we say. So um, the reality is, how about coming back to that which we primordially are, yeah. which is without, is empty, empty of the me, me land that we are constantly in. Yeah. So, but to me, that's, I totally agree with it, but intellectually, uh, I'm fine with, you know, I, I met that thing. I know what that thing is, okay? And I'm, I'm doing my best to keep that as my, as my mm -hmm. anchor. So yeah. I want to mention, though, Bob, and, and this does play into what we're talking about, you know, the, the uh, extraordinary crystalline nature of, of, of Zen philosophy, shall we even say. Mm -hmm. um, versus, gee, maybe that's a bit of a reach for mm -hmm. many of us. Uh, and so you did this. So when I saw the book, and by the way, here's the book. I have a lot of notes, everybody. That is not your mind. And then smaller type is the Zen Reflections on the Surangama Sutra, which I had never heard of. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, as I've been kind of alluding to all the way uh, through this conversation, I like the practicalities. Get to me the practicalities. The sutras themselves, I might have fun one day with the poetic nature of, of a description of reality, but I, I'm into the practicality. So then I'm, can I, I'm going to quote a little bit from, from the book, okay? Because um, it, it, you state that uh, the sutra uh, it's unusually, you say, for a sutra. It begins with the siren of sex. Of course, as soon as I saw that, that I got sucked right into the page. It couldn't be better, Bob. Uh, and Ananda, the Buddha's cousin and primary intendant, I think we all, have, even if you were just in college and studying um, Buddhism, you would have come across Ananda, is wrapped in the arms of a beautiful woman courtesan from the Matanga tribe, he has succumbed succumb to a spell and is about to break his vows of celibacy. Shakyamuni Buddha pours forth light from the crown of his head, producing the powerful Surangama mantra to rescue both Ananda and the Matanga woman once back at the Sangha. So Ananda is mortified by his lapse and requests instruction. And the Buddha responds by identifying the root of Ananda's problems. He's vulnerable to being ensnared by sense cravings because he has not understood the nature of mind. Like most of us, you say, Ananda believes his self, his rather sense impressions are two, true representations of an external reality. He fails to realize these are illusions. In true reality, every apparent thing, every apparent where, every apparent when is the fully awakened mind of all Buddhas, which is exactly what you were just saying. Where do we come back to? And I, and I, I, very difficult 
very oh. difficult to that. I mean, that's so uh, easy for Westerners in particular, in my mind, which is why, I, you know, I love that whatever we got from Neem Karoli Baba and our experience and whatever that legacy is, it's primarily around heart practice, uh, devotional yeah. practice and uh, Viveka, you know, discriminating wisdom. The only good, the only great things he ever said about anybody were llamas and stuff, which was really interesting mm -hmm. to us back then. And uh, actually, one day I was with my friend Krishnadas, and uh, he had a notebook and he had written some uh, passages out from um, Mahamudra. And uh, Maharaji stopped him on that page. We that's who we we called him that. And he he said to the translator, you know, translate this. And so he translated, you know, a paragraph or two, and Maharaji went, Teek in Hindi means yes, right on. So, you know, very weird. So uh, there is that combo. But in this situation here, when you're, and um, it's a little bit of a, a pushback for those that maybe this is like way too far off to mm -hmm. even grasp. Yes. Well, let me just riff on that for a yeah, little bit. Yeah, yeah. First of all, this is where Qigong comes in very handy uh -huh. for me, quite right. literally, because there's a Qigong movement. looks very simple. I'm, I'm, I don't know if we can get it. But basically, you reach out and you gather the energy. Now, it's important that when you gather the energy, I don't know if you can see, but if I look through here, I can see. Okay, so you gather the energy. Fist, yeah, yeah, but it's not completely. It's not closed. completely. Yeah, and the question is, how do you hold emptiness? Because um, that's literally what you're doing, and it's it's a one can learn how to relate to others in part by well closed tight fist relationship doesn't work very well right fist like this which which doesn't hold enough relationship doesn't work very well what's just the right feel of <sighs> touching In order to be aware of where your hand is, you need to be able to feel where it's not. Mm -hmm. And a large part of the Surangama Sutra is we need to be aware of how we're unaware, not as a bad, you're not aware, but <laughs> this is the, the edge, yeah. the, the horizon where everything is vital and and it's good to be very concrete sometimes so how do you let go of things i'll sometimes teach people well you know you can pick something up and when you put it down i uh i won't be able to show you here but you put it down keep your hands on it notice what it feels like to hold it and then release we know how to release. Mm. 
but we can practice it. You take a teacup, you drink from it, you put it down, you release, plus there's so much space that will accept the presence of of you, of the teacup. my teacher used to say, my Qigong teacher used to say, so you're a therapist and doctors, they always wash their hands after each patient, uh, right? And I said, yeah. So after you see a patient, you wash your mind? <laughs> and I said, uh, well, how do you do that? Oh, she said, oh, you go like this. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> and I thought, well, there's been several times where I've seen somebody and before I call the next person, I kind of want to go, ha, yeah. ha. And, but, but here's the, where the Buddhist practice comes in is as long as you do that with everyone, you're not discriminating and getting into problems and you can love everyone equally and let go equally because the basis of letting go and holding is the same for everyone because and here's another piece of the Surangama Sutra which is very hard to get to meaning Uh, well it's hard to understand we're we're used to thinking of our mind as perceiving objects Mm mm-hmm and we treat other people as objects, and we wind up treating even ourselves as objects. Exactly. But everything is in a constant dance with each other. And there's, there's really no such thing as things. <laughs> there's, there's vitality. There's constant transformation. And as you get more used to this, It feels natural. My my Qigong teacher would often say, just natural. And and we go, well, what does that mean? And she goes, just natural. <laughs> natural. And you there's no way you cannot be just natural because <laughs> we're part of nature. But we can feel alienated. And you talked about looking into uh uh, someone's eyes or the guru's eyes and seeing emptiness. I had a client once say to me, when you can see yourself in others' eyes, that sure beats a mirror. Mm. I mean, what yeah. a what an amazing Very, statement, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then what happens when a mirror, there's actually a Buddhist writing which talks about mirrors meeting. Mm. And it says, so you have this image of the mind reflecting reality. Uh, the, the clear mirror reflects whatever comes. That's really good practice. But then someone says, but what happens when a mirror faces a mirror? <laughs> and the answer is, shatters into a million pieces. Mm. And... That's where we are. We're picking up the pieces all the time, but each piece reflects 
the entirety of, of our life and death. Mm. You know, uh, so the, I don't know if that addresses uh, what no, you're No, no, it's about, lovely. But. That's one of the things I love about the, uh, that this, uh, well, I mean, you're speaking of the uh, Qigong practice and kind of combining it with the Zen. And I, I really understand you in terms of how the Qigong complements the Zen, you know, practice. And I really, I get that from you. I think that's terrific. And, I, and it reminds me, I have known other others, uh, Zen practitioners who really have a, um, some practice uh, that, that is centered around uh, body work and, and so on. And it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. Because otherwise, to me, it could be very disembodied and and, yeah. and way up in the ethers. Um, but uh, so there's one uh, in the book. Um, I think you know one of the our biggest challenges as humans is the the, the way we manage to um, to really delve deeply into ignorance. Mm through causes and conditions and the development of neurotic tendencies and habitual pattern, you know, the whole me, me land. Yeah. And uh, so you have, so, it's something uh, that you talked about clearly not understanding when we stop pretending. I, and I love this because this is real plain spoken and right to the core of what so most of, not most of us, all of us deal on a day-to-day basis with. When we stop pretending, we're able to see a little bit more clearly to know what we know, know what we don't know, and cultivate wonder at the vastness of what we don't know we don't know. This is particularly important for realizing our enlightenment. Um, To me, it's particularly important to just take one foot in front of the other on a path to getting free. Uh, you know, it's extraordinary. Um, uh, I, th- I remember uh, Bob Thurman, and, and of course you know yes, Bob. Yes. Um, he was teaching at one of the retreats we had, and uh, he was he was talking about there's one thing, there's ignorance. You know, it is what it is. But probably even more um, of a problem is thinking you know something. Right. Yes. Yes. And uh, you know, this to me, uh, you go on to say, we assume the I, quote unquote, I must wake up in order to become enlightened, just as we assume the I wake up and I go to sleep. I, I, I. However, while we're dozing, the brain stays active and the heart continues to beat. In our enlightenment, <laughs> delusions come and go. To think you are, quote unquote, out of it when in sleep unenlightened and with it when awake is a is an illusion a big illusion and uh yeah and and to me that um runs parallel to i was talking to a friend of mine just the other day and doing a a podcast uh and we talked about uh, honesty Mm -hmm. and uh where does that lie in the pantheon of of the teachings and the zen teachings because to me, that's just a starting point. Well, it is a starting point. And at one point, uh, gosh, it was a while ago now, uh, 15, 
20 years ago, I had a stroke while I was up in the mountains of Nepal. Mm. And uh, my friend had to leave me and I was alone for a while. I, I won't go into that whole experience. But when I got back, I said to myself, okay, Bob, you've been practicing Qigong, practicing uh, psychotherapy, meditating, trying to be a good guy, and you still had a stroke. None of this stuff is going to save you. Why should I continue practicing oh, with any of this stuff? Oh. And, I, and I spent a year thinking about it. And the first thing I thought was, well, okay, whatever practice I do or whatever, what, what, where do I start? And the first foundation I came to is truth. Because mm. if you don't start with truth, you're living in a fantasy and it doesn't work that well. Plus. I'm a really bad liar. I am just really bad at it. I can't keep track of them. I'll come, I'll have a little smile when I try and lie. I give myself away. Yeah. So uh, the truth is ultimately easier. The truth is our friend. And it's in these days of relativity, we start to think, well, truth, uh, there's no such thing as truth. There is such a thing. Well, there's no thing which is truth, but truth exists. It's just that it won't stay still. Mm -hmm. And so to be as truthful as we can simplifies things. It, 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 it really is easier in the long run. Uh, it can be a little tricky in the short run. And you have to learn how to be tactful and deal with situations. But where do you start if you don't start with the truth as best as you can describe it? Or well, it's to me, it's really uh, crucial when in looking at your motivations and the way you interact with everything and everybody. And uh, and how uh, self-serving one can be. All of getting that's yes, of course. Telling the truth, as you were just describing, is a very freeing. But it's harder to tell the truth to yourself. I think, <laughs> right? And uh, that's that's what's needed, and that's why. Mindfulness is, is of course, if applied correctly, is is very, very important. And by the way, anybody out there listening, I've said this a million times, get Joseph Goldstein's book, Mindfulness. Okay, it's a Bible about this. It is extraordinary. You remind me a little bit, by the way, because you're both from New York. Both of them, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got that thing. Uh, so, um, so moving a little bit away from... Um, telling oneself the truth. And um, since this whole, uh, this sutra starts off with this whole thing with uh, Ananda and being entrapped by a 
apsara, as they, the Hindus would mm-hmm. talk about the uh, inviting uh, young woman. And uh, one of the things you talk about is uh, the, in the book, which is part of the tenets and of uh, tenets of this particular sutra, which is misusing sexuality. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, boy, is that run rampant. This, you know what? On the other hand, I'm sure it's rampant in the East as well. We just don't hear about oh, it. We have, bitch. you know, social media has made a whole other thing of this. But, but then I, you know what? I love this story about um, <laughs> the Buddhist monk and the nun, <laughs> right? Who were celibate yeah. practice. They lived in celibate practice centers and then the, the hill between them. And then at night, whoop, they're yeah. getting it on. I mean, that's just fun, fun stuff. And uh, and then you know he's so wasted. I'm I'm obviously I'm just giving the guts of what this story is. You know, uh, and he's so wasted. Then he goes to zazen in the morning. Uh, he completely fa- falls so deeply asleep. They you know his his uh, his confreres think that he's enlightened because right. when he gets hit with this, <laughs> thing. it made me think of something. Bob, so we we uh, we're just as part of the Love Server Member Foundation. I mentioned to you, uh, we we occasionally do documentaries that you know, hark to uh, our experience in India with our mentors and teachers and so on. Um, and there's a, so there's one coming out. It's called Brilliant Disguises. It was about a mentor of ours that was assigned when Neem Karoli Baba left. He said, you take care of the Westerners. Uh, and he was, so he, we were his assignment. He understood Western psychology better than any Indian. He spoke perfect English. And he was a high yogi who we only knew of because he would go into a samadhi, into high, high states of absorption, re- literally no, because he would say, is he breathing? And Maharaji mm-hmm. would say, you know, nothing, nothing going on. Mm-hmm. And this happened all the way through our experience with him. So it's a fascinating story. But what I got reminded of when I read this part, this passage in the book, is that, so he went into these states. He was um, basically introduced to his wife. He became, uh, why it's a brilliant disguise. He was a family man and he was a headmaster at a boys' school in, uh, in the foothills of the Himalaya. And, uh, and so he said actually to my friend Krishnadas one day, you know, I didn't ha- start having those experiences, the samadhi experiences. I don't think he would have characterized it as samadhi. That would be too, but whatever he said until after I got married. And he had a little sly wink. <laughs> so we were all like, when we heard this, we're like, really? Because the, probably the opposite has happened with us. We got, you know, we got pulled in when, you know, we were in our early 20s and got pulled mm-hmm. into this incredible zone that you couldn't imagine, you know, that, and then we had to go back and have families. And what did you call it? The catastrophe? Was that right, right. Yeah. So we went through that. And uh, so I think this whole issue, and you do, it's discussed in this book. In, in your book, the, the reality of, of uh, what, what sex really 
is, uh, you know, we are, we come from such a negative um, association with it uh, from, I mean, it's just extraordinary. And now it, it gets worse when uh, teachers come from the East and get entrapped mm-hmm. in their own, mm-hmm. you know, stuff around it. Yet, and I, I hear this story from this man who I knew and I was with many, many a time when he would go into these states and to say, uh, you know, um, the relationship with uh, the reality of what happens to a being when they become unified mm-hmm. and how that's expressed uh, as a f- uh, through human sexuality, to me, is extraordinary. I know this just tripped me yeah. out into this thing, Bob. Yes. Well, it is extraordinary. And we really need to talk about it more and not make it either forbidden territory or, um, well, so much it's, of our society is, yeah, is, is, is exalted. It, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's the, it's, on the altar. It's on the altar. Yeah, yeah all of it. Yeah. That's yeah, why it's a difficult. You know, in in that regard, so I got my wife and I have been together for oh I don't know not quite fifteen years now, but we only got officially married about six months ago. Oh, congrats! And uh, and we um, we thought we were doing it for legal reasons and financial reasons and whatnot. But when it came right down to it, it felt rather wonderful. And on the day that we got married, we were lying in bed together and we were talking about, gee, this is kind of nice. And my wife turned to me and she said, you know, there's a lot of acceptance here. Well, how can you be more accepting than in the throes of love? And sexuality is part of it, and being honest is part of it so that you can communicate with each other. And so... You know, sex is pretty basic. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> why we have to make this big deal about it. I mean, we talk about neuroses, yeah, and yeah. hang-ups and everything. Yeah. It's wonderful, and it can trip you up. And yeah, and it's not. There's a difference between sex and masturbation. There's a mm-hmm. difference between the relationship where there's an exchange of, of energy and acceptance and seeing and not being seen and, mm. and uh, pleasuring oneself. Uh, nothing wrong with pleasuring oneself, but uh, the, the intercourse of beings is what it's all about mm. matter and energy mm. you and i now and then uh it's all pretty sexy <laughs> <laughs> oh boy um 
we can't, uh, we're getting close to the end here. We're at the end, but we can't. Uh, here's what really got me uh, in terms of I had never met you before. We have never talked before. Mm-hmm. If get, you know, getting someone through what they presented here in terms mm-hmm. of words. Um, and it was this, uh, I confess, you said, that in the course of studying the Surangama Sutra, I've rather fallen in love with it. Yeah. Love is the center point of the sutra. Like every point, it is dimensionless with infinite potential in its emptiness. Yes. And I'll tell you, and I mentioned Joseph just before. So Ramdas and Joseph got together. We did something with them and they were just chatting and they went into this whole thing about, um, emptiness and love ramdas was mm-hmm. referenced and joseph would say you know it's all words nomenclature yeah. he said and i think you got the easy thing you know i love you and Joseph, but it'd be it's harder for me i empty you <laughs> they got into this dialogue together that's so precious but ends up being exactly what you expressed and that's yeah. really what we're talking about in my mind in my experience so I, I thank you so much, uh, Bob, for being here and, and great to uh, get to know, you know, over the pandemic, uh, all I had was podcasts, you know, to be able to be with people. Yeah. You know, it was it was phenomenal uh, that way and getting to know people. And uh, so a pleasure this is. And I hope we can we can do it again. Everybody. This book is going to be in the show notes and you'll be able to. Is it out, Bob? Uh, I believe it's issued on August 9th. Okay, so this podcast will probably be up in in and around that area of timing and you'll be able to go and purchase it. It's got some, I mean, literally I could do two or three easily podcasts with all the little notes that I've made of things that interested me. Um, and, and initially I was a little bit, okay, Sutra, oh my God, way <laughs> above my pay grade, you know, kind of a thing as a, uh, as a sometime bhakti, but it is not at all and has tremendous practical uh, applications. So thank you for doing that. And again, it'll all be up in the show notes and maybe some of the other stuff that we talked about will be there. And um, we'll see you next time. Oh, thank you so much um, for this opportunity to meet you and talk with you. It's it's a genuine pleasure. I hope forget about the podcast. I hope we have a chance to just chat yeah. over a cup of tea sometime. Where um, are you? I forgot. Uh, I'm in Sac- I'm in Sacramento, California. Uh-huh. Okay, and we're going to give uh, also the uh, online location so you. Everybody out there can see what else Bob's up. I mean, a lot of uh, great work that you've done. You are thank doing. You, and thank you for your work in these podcasts. Uh, another form of love, yes? Yeah. Yes, very good, as they very say. Very good. <laughs> very good. Okay. Uh, see you all next time. This is uh, Raghu for Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and there's just a wonderful plethora of exciting podcasts. And we'll talk later. We'll see you. 